Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hi Islanders, this week we have something a little different. A few weeks back, a crime channel YouTuber reached out to me for help in getting the word around about a particular case, if you can call it a case, about the disappearance of a young girl, Amanda Winkowski, at Buffalo, New York in December of 2008. Her frozen body would be found upside down in a wheelie bin or a trash can a month later. Tonight I will chat with Gavin Fish, the YouTuber that reached out to me and discuss this case. You see, even though her frozen body was found upside down in a bin, her death was deemed a drug overdose by the coroner. And that's where the police investigation stopped. Yeah, it sounds crazy. That's not the only crazy thing about this case. And Amanda's mum has never stopped trying to get the police to reinvestigate her daughter's death and try to get some justice. So to start with, I'll read out from the treatedliketrash.com website. And it's an overview of the case. And then I'll chat to Gavin for a more in-depth rundown. So let's get stuck straight into it. On the evening of December the 5th, 2008, Amanda Winkowski was driven into a dangerous neighbourhood on the east side of Buffalo, New York, by a man named Adam Patterson. By 8.30pm, Patterson was back in the safety of his home, and Amanda was never seen again. Upon discovering her missing, her mother, Leslie Brill Messerol, reported Amanda missing to police on December the 7th. Amanda's body was discovered on January the 9th, 2009, She was frozen solid, naked, beaten and stuffed upside down in a garbage can. One of the people who people believe is Amanda's killer, Antoine Garner, is currently serving 18 years for raping and strangling another woman. The problem in solving this case is that the official medical examiner's report lists Amanda's death as an accidental opiate overdose. Despite large finger-shaped bruises on her neck, the way her dead body was hidden for five weeks and eventually dumped in a garbage tote. And there was the lack of main metabolite of heroin in Amanda's body. Amanda's mother has diligently fought for justice for Amanda through the media and court since 2009. Now we have joined with her to right the egregious wrong done to her daughter. Rather than starting with the typical who did it, We first need to place pressure on and overturn the initial medical examiner's report and correctly designate Amanda's death as a homicide. Until then, even Buffalo police are unable to investigate Amanda's case further or make any arrests. And they say, help us right this wrong for Amanda and her family once and for all. I'd just like to introduce you to Gavin Fish, who sent me an email about this case. And he knows quite a bit about it, and we're going for a bit of a call to action here. So we're going to just have a bit of a chat about all the aspects of the case and why it's so important that we have it reinvestigated, basically. Okay, Gavin, how are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me, Campbell. I appreciate it. All right. So this is a pretty crazy case. When you sent it to me, I was sucked in straight away. So she's found in a wheelie bin, what we call a wheelie bin in Australia, a big garbage bin. She's naked. She's frozen. 
and an autopsy finds that she has died from an opiate overdose. Right. That doesn't seem to be the case, does it? No, it doesn't. This was a, this was a case that, I mean, all the stars aligned. I, I mean, I just don't understand how it happened, but all the stars aligned kind of against this victim. She, um, like you said, she was found frozen solid. She was upside down. She was naked, found inside one of those outside garbage bins. And, you know, when, when I looked, when I started to look at this case, it became very apparent real quick that she didn't just overdose. It's just, just not possible that she overdosed. So tell me a little bit about Amanda. She's 20 years old and Amanda. Yeah. Amanda was a 20 year old young woman. She's living in a city of Buffalo, New York, or the area of Buffalo, New York. And Amanda was kind of caught up in something that happened to a lot of, of young people, her age at the time, there was this big epidemic of heroin that just kind of washed through Buffalo in the early two thousands. And she went from being what is called a Regent scholar. So she was, she was a very good student. She graduated with a Regent's diploma from high school. And she went from that to being kind of living on the street, addicted to heroin and working as a sex worker to, to feed that habit. And it all happened within about a year prior to that. Again, she was a good student. She was, she came from a loving home. Yeah. Just it's really, it's really a sad story to kind of watch all of that happen in Buffalo. A lot of kids, this was happening to a lot of kids, including Amanda's brothers and sisters, but Amanda was looking for help and she was scheduled to start treatment at a Suboxone clinic about three days after she disappeared. The last time anybody saw her, she was dropped off at the house of a man named Antoine Garner. He was a known drug dealer in Buffalo's East Side. She wasn't seen again for 35 days until she was found. Her body was found in that bin. So she was dropped off by a guy called Adam. Adam Patterson. Yeah. So Adam actually had a relationship with the family. Adam was a man who went to high school with Amanda's stepdad, a guy named uh, John Medzinski. And Adam would come around the house all the time. I mean, the first time that Amanda's, Amanda's sister, Danielle, described it as not knowing the first time she met Adam because she was so little. So what was kind of happening at this time is Amanda was going to, she was trying, she was working to clean herself up and her her older sister, Carolee, was moving back to the Buffalo area and she was going to move in with Carolee, but she needed about, about six weeks of a place to stay. And Adam gave her a place to stay. But as it turns out, Adam just wasn't a savory guy. He, he's actually pretty well known in the area as somebody who kind of cruises for prostitutes and, you know, uses, uses drugs to this day. He's still around, you know, their relationship went from, I'm, uh, you know, staying on your couch while I'm waiting for my sister, Carolee to, to move back to, I found Adam's semen in her mouth, you know, when, when she turned up dead, it was pretty sad. Yeah. Cause when police interview Adam first, he says he met her at a bar, right? Then later he changes his story saying he met her as a sex worker. Mm-hmm. Whereas we know that he actually knew the whole family for quite a, quite a long time. 
Yeah, her entire life she knew him. So Adam was lying from the very beginning. What he what happened was on the fifth of December two thousand eight, Adam drove Amanda to Buffalo's East Side. Uh, Buffalo is the East Side of Buffalo is a dangerous place for almost anybody. But Amanda and Adam is particularly dangerous because they just didn't, they they stuck out out there. The story that he told was he dropped her off and he was going to wait for a few minutes. He didn't feel comfortable waiting in front of the house. So he drove to like a quickie mart, like a convenience store and uh, bought some lotto tickets, had a slice of pizza. And basically his story was she kept saying that she needed more time. And then eventually he just got sick of waiting around. So he left. Yeah. Cause we, there's phone records to back up at least it aligns a certain amount between Adam and Amanda. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, when I looked at the phone records, they were texting a lot during the day and from where Adam and Amanda lived, they lived on the Tuscarora Indian reservation, North of Buffalo to get to the east side of Buffalo, it would take about about a half an hour. Mm. And it's there are some kind of strange weirdnesses in there in that they were texting each other during that time. Like at 5.42 p.m., they texted each other and they were supposedly together. But the, but the phone calls show that Amanda arrived at Antoine Garner's house by about 6.07. And my belief is by about 6.46, she was already dead. Yeah, because there's this 6.51 call that comes from Amanda's phone, does it? But it's yeah. conferenced in with a, a mystery third person. Correct. So, so again, Adam was getting these texts and calls saying, I need more time. And then he gets a call at 6.51 and he thinks it's from Amanda, but phone records show that Amanda's phone called a known associate of Antoine Garner. Her name is mm. Sarah Christ. And then Amanda's phone called Adam's phone on a three-way call. And it was Sarah Christ who told him, you know, come back later, basically. Yeah, my belief is that Amanda was dead before that call was made. The other thing in the phone records, it shows that Amanda's phone was used to call to check the weather. Remember when we used to do that? We'd make phone calls, check the weather. It It was used to check the weather. I think it was about 6.42 p.m. And... Amanda had never done that before ever in the history mm. of her phone. She had never done that. And Antoine Garner did that all the time. Like it, he made three to 10 calls a day to find, find the weather. So Antoine was using that phone at about 6.42 PM. And we should remind all the listeners, this is 2008. It's not <laughs> messaging apps and all that that's right. uh, on everyone's phone. This was a little what they call a candy bar phone. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's why you would do things like call weather and you just wouldn't look at it on your screen. Yeah, these kids were all kind of poor kids. They were addicted to drugs. All their money went to drugs, right? And mm-hmm. so they used they used a service up there called Cricket Wireless, which was a prepaid wireless thing, and they all had to track their minutes and their text messages and everything. It's just a very different world. We're only talking 12 years ago, but that's the way it was back then. Okay. So now Amanda is reported missing. Yeah. So about two days later, nobody knows where Amanda is and her sister gets a hold of Adam and Adam tells her, I haven't seen her since Friday and uh, it was a drug deal gone bad. I don't know where she is. I'm worried about her too. 
And that's when her family kind of sprung into action. It was actually pretty uncommon for her family to be out of touch with her for that long of a time. They're a close knit family and they, and Mm. they talked all the time, especially her sister, Danielle, because those two, you know, they had the same addiction and they would do the same activities together in order to get heroin. And they would Mm. frequently do heroin together, but it just so happened that they had gotten into a fight. And so they just weren't talking. It wouldn't have helped anyway. I mean, I think Amanda was dead by 642 on the 5th, but it was a couple of days before her family really knew what was going on. And, and her sister reached out to her mom and her mom sprung into action and started looking for Amanda. If she was going to buy heroin, say Mm -hmm. she had contacts a lot closer to where she lived. She didn't have to go to a dangerous place like East Buffalo, this thing about maybe she was a police informer, I find that hard to believe. Yeah. um, So there are little twists and turns in this case that at the time in Buffalo, again, they were facing this drug epidemic. And so all of the little agencies, the police agencies, along with state agencies at the time, created this drug task force. And Danielle, who is Amanda's sister, she actually was an informant for the drug task force. And they believe that Amanda was as well. I haven't been able to verify that, but I believe them when they tell me that she was. I interviewed her, uh, Amanda's boyfriend at the time, and he told me all about how Amanda was trying to act as an informant in order to get leniency for him because he was in jail on a related charge, drug-related charge. That's Ryan. His name is Ryan Paces. Yeah. So, yeah. so I believe that she probably was acting as a police informant, but I, one of the theories about that is that, okay, so she was a police informant and they found out that, that she was snitching on them. And so they killed her over oh, okay. it. Right. The because other theory what was, is, go ahead. That, that was saying that you wouldn't go to Antoine's house to buy heroin. No, Antoine wasn't a heroin dealer. He was a crack cocaine dealer. So the other part of that is that Amanda had placed an ad in a local publication called Art Voice in the adult services section. So she she was advertising herself as like an escort, as a sex worker, right? Mm. So when police searched Antoine Garner's house later, they did find that, that uh, I almost said episode, but what do we call that? That issue of Art Voice, the magazine. Oh, okay. Great. So- I think that he probably found out about Amanda through Art Voice. According to people that I've talked to that knew Antoine, he was the kind of person that would lure people in with the promise of drugs. So yeah. we'll you know, get to and, him a little bit later because 35 days after she's last seen alive, they find her in the wheelie bin. Yeah. And that, and that bin was placed directly across the street from Antoine Garner's house. Yeah. The last house that she was found that she was seen going into, it was kind of hidden in this little alcove in, in a church across the street. And the weather, we don't get it like that in Sydney. The body could have been frozen just by being outside for oh, those yeah. 35 days. Yeah. I, I, the, so we're not talking the, about freezes or anything like that. She could have just been stored somewhere and then we've got to do something. Yeah. So that area... Uh, is right along two great lakes, Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. It's on the northern part of the United States. I live about a couple hours from there. It gets cold up here, man. It gets very, very cold. And for the 35 days that Amanda was missing, it was below freezing for all 35 of those days. So 
I think that she was just stored. The other thing is she, her body, the way it was frozen, didn't fit the bin. Like it was frozen Mm -hmm. differently. So she was, she was stored outside, but like in the trunk of a car or in a crawl space under a house or something like that. So then there's the autopsy, the initial autopsy by Diane Vertes. Yeah. So, so the day this doesn't go quite how they should for a frozen body, does it? No, it doesn't. They found Amanda on January 9th of 2009 and uh, her body was frozen solid. Now, I've talked with multiple forensic pathologists about this and there are actual papers that I found as well. There are procedures that medical examiners follow in order to thaw a frozen body. What they do is they keep they keep the body in the in their cooler, you know, that that big wall of drawers that we see in on TV, right, and in the movies. Yeah. Over the course of a couple of weeks and the body comes up to temperature right around you know, it's right above freezing. And at at that point, the body is thawed through and they can, they can do the autopsy. But what happened in Amanda's case is they left her body on the examination table overnight. And then the following morning they performed the autopsy. So her skin was thawed, Mm -hmm. I guess. Right. I mean, I've seen the photos on this. Her skin is bright red, like to the point where it could hide any type of bruise or or things like that. Like things could be hidden because it's not the color of her flesh. And then the inside of her was frozen still. And they Mm. still, they still did that. And what they found, well, what they ruled was that Amanda had died of acute opiate intoxication and the manner of death was accident. But when I went through the photos that the Erie County medical examiner's office actually took themselves there was bruising on her neck, right? Like mm. finger shaped bruises on her neck, the cartilage around her, you know, what is that? Her, um, it, it wasn't her hyoid bone, but the thoracic cartilage in her neck was fractured. And there are actual photos of Dr. Verdes pointing out hematoma in her neck. Like, like there are photos of her pointing to it as if to say, please take a photo of this. Right. Yeah. So there's all this evidence that she was strangled, but when the autopsy report came out, she ruled it a, an accidental overdose. Why do you think that happened when it's obvious and must be obvious too? And not only her, but several others signed off on it. Yeah. Well, that was the kind of suspicious thing. And I'm, I resist the whole, I, I, I try to resist personally coming up with theories on, you know, was there some type of conspiracy on this? Because I don't want to, I don't want to come across as somebody who is just kind of loopy. Right. I like, yeah. Um, but no, there had to be a conspiracy here, man. It was, it was, well, do you think it was just lax. No, I don't. I think it was done purposefully because there was a police officer that was there witnessing the autopsy. So we have to keep his name private, but we know who he is because he told Leslie this. He he told her that during the middle of the examination, somebody in Buffalo's political class came into the examination room and said, nothing to see here, clear the room. This was an accident and forced everybody out. And then when the autopsy report came out, the autopsy was, was signed by all four medical examiners. Like every medical examiner that worked at the medical examiner's office signed off on that autopsy that has never been done before or since. 
Okay, so it doesn't happen. When I, yeah, I saw all those names that signed up. That just what they normally just have. Maybe a secondary person might do it, but not that many. Yeah, if they need a specialist, right? If they need somebody, like one of the one of the guys had his MD. He also had he was also a DDS, right? So he was like their their mouth guy, right? So if they needed a specialist, you know, something about identification through teeth and stuff like that, he was their guy. And in those cases, there would be two two signatures, never four. It never happened, ever. So, so yeah, we'd I, also me, get DNA, DNA analysis. Yeah. Well, there, there are a couple things. So on the DNA, what comes back is they did swabs of her mouth, her rectal cavity or vaginal cavity. They swabbed her legs. They, they took tape lifts and stuff like that. They found the DNA of four males, one of which was Antoine Garner, the other one of which was Adam Patterson. And then two unknown males, three unknown females, and then two other people where there was a partial DNA and they don't know what, what their you know sex is. Hmm. So, but that, that analysis comes at a second autopsy, doesn't it? No, because that analysis, the original one, no, that analysis came from Erie from, County medical examiner's office. Okay. Yeah. Can you believe that? So you've got, you've got evidence that she was, she was raped by multiple people and you've got DNA linking, you know, the two last people who saw her alive to her, you know, to her, their DNA is yeah. all over her. And it was a, it was ruled an accident. So, so she's what, got GHB in her system as well. That's the date rape drug. Yeah. Now the GHB side of things I've gone back and forth on because GHB mm. is something that, that does form post-mortem in, in our bodies. Okay. So she may have been given GHB, uh, it may just have been something that occurred naturally, but there are a couple things that that support the opiate finding. Okay, that mm. you know that Virtus could have said, okay, well, I can call it an opiate overdose because I'm getting this pressure from these people, and so I'll call it that. Amanda had been prescribed Tylenol with codeine in the last week of her life. Morphine is a metabolite of codeine. It's also a metabolite of heroin. So in her bodily fluids, they found codeine and they found morphine. And she did have track marks on her body because she had been using heroin. But the thing that was conspicuously missing is there is a metabolite of heroin that is only a metabolite of heroin. It doesn't come from anywhere else. And it's called six-monocetylmorphine or six-mam. And so they, they tested for that at Erie County Medical Examiner's Office in the toxicology lab. And there was no six-mam in her urine. And if there's no six ma'am in a victim's urine, then you know that there hasn't been any heroin in that victim's body in at least the last 24 hours of her life. And that means she probably didn't overdose from it. She couldn't have overdosed from heroin. So, okay, Mm. let's look at the other opiates, codeine. Well, when I take a look, when I talk to toxicologists and other medical examiners, they say, yeah, that looks like about the level that you would have if you were taking Tylenol with codeine, you know, it's, it's a therapeutic level there. Nobody would overdose Mm. on this. Okay. So then June the 2nd, 2009, there's another autopsy. Yeah. So what, what ended up happening here is that her body was released from Erie County, given over to the funeral home and they hold her funeral at the burial. When they go out to the cemetery, a police officer that Leslie 
previous to that point had like had never talked to comes up to her and says, Leslie, this is a cover up. You've been railroaded. You need to get a second autopsy. You need to exhume Amanda and get a second autopsy. And that's the moment that Leslie kind of sprung into action. So what they did is they raised money and they had to fight Erie County for the right to exhume her own daughter. They fought it in court. Mm. And when she won, she shipped Amanda's remains along with that, that guy who told her you've got to get a second autopsy to witness it. And a friend named Kathy Wepner. And they went and they witnessed the autopsy. It was done in Los Angeles, California. That autopsy was done by a pathologist who was well known. She was, she was at the top of her game, at the top of any game. She, she was, she was well known here in the States. Her name is Dr. Sylvia Comparini and she did an autopsy and, you know, she ruled that Amanda's death was a homicide by manual strangulation, which is the obvious thing. And in, in fact, in her autopsy report, which you can see, if you go to treatedlikethrash.com, you can read it. She even like, she notes the photographs that Erie County, <laughs> you know, sure. took. Right. like look at your own photographs. She really kind of took them to task. But one of the, one of the things that was suspicious about this Cambo is when Amanda's yeah. remains arrived in Los Angeles, they were missing what, parts. They were missing parts. So yeah. basically her tongue down to her sternum, all of that was missing and they had to fight again in court to get access to those tissues to, for Dr. Comparini to examine them. So Erie County, they knew what, what they had done and they were fighting, fighting, fighting to keep the cover up going. But ultimately Dr. Comparini ruled it a, uh, a homicide by manual strangulation, which it obviously was. And then we have to now look at who the prime suspect would be, this Antoine guy. Yeah. He's got priors, hasn't he? He's he's got history. Antoine's got a long history. So the the first one that I was able to find, he was 16 years old. It was in the newspaper. He attacked a freshman in high school, a, a little girl. He held her by the neck, he pinned her up against a wall, and he attacked her sexually until uh like she screamed out and one of the adults on campus came running and and found what happened. So he was convicted of that, but, but that those stories from when he was 16 reference stories that were two years older than that, that he had Mm -hmm. prior. So when he was 14 years old, he was attacking women. And about a month before Amanda was killed, he actually allegedly, raped and strangled another woman. Her name was Celeste Cerisi and Celeste Cerisi told police, if you don't, if you don't arrest this guy, if you don't stop this guy, he's going to kill somebody. And about, and he's a big guy. Yeah. uh, Antoine is about six foot five and he's about 350 pounds. Mm. So whatever that is in kilos and centimeters, I don't know, but that's a big dude. That's, that's a big guy. So, and he was that way from the time he was a young kid when he was, when he was 16, they described him as six, three, 300. So he's got a, an MO as we call mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And, well, and, and he currently is in maximum security prison for the rape and strangulation of another woman after Amanda. And that case only really got investigated after the death of Amanda. Yeah, it did. Yeah, police were looking to get him on something, and there was a lot to choose from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, 
Yeah. So he was, uh, he's in prison for armed robbery, assault, statutory rape, rape, uh, strangulation, and like probably 10 other things, but not the the murder of Amanda Winkowski. Now to push Amanda's investigation further, what needs to be done? Yeah. So when Erie County, when the district attorney got Dr. Comparini's autopsy report, they went to a third Emmy and that third Emmy told him, you know, it really should be the cause of death should be determined since we've got these two autopsies that are saying different things. It should be undetermined. And then you guys can investigate. And the DA at the time, a guy named Frank Sedita said, no, we're not going to investigate. So it just stopped right there. So basically for the last 12 years, Leslie has been fighting to get the cause of death and the manner of death of her daughter changed from accidental overdose to homicide by strangulation. And the reason that's important is the Buffalo police can't investigate a non-crime, right? They can't, they can't investigate. So they're completely handcuffed. They need, they need a homicide to investigate. And so, uh, you know, recently we've uncovered, more information that six monoacetylmorphine is something that we uncovered just in our investigation. We've presented that to the, to the district attorney's office. We have given that information over to the medical examiner's office and we've given it to the Buffalo PD. All of them point at the others, you know, thanks for telling me this. You really ought to tell the DA. Then the DA says, thanks for telling me this. You really ought to tell the ME. Then mm-hmm. the ME says, thanks for, te- you know, I don't want you to tell me this. I want you to tell our County attorney. Well, the County attorney is over in the DA's office. So they're just, sending us in circles. So right now we're, uh, we're in the process of filing a lawsuit. It's called an article 78. It's not, it's not a lawsuit in the way you think of it. Like we're suing them for money or anything like that. It's basically what we're, what we're alleging is that the um, authorities are acting arbitrarily and capriciously. And we want a court to compel them to investigate this new information. Because there's a thing about some marks on her cheek. Yeah. So one of the things that we noticed in our investigation, you couldn't really see it in the, in the autopsy that Dr. Virtas did because of the color of her flesh, but they were there. But in Dr. Comparini's autopsy, there are two um, jab wounds into the side of Amanda's jaw on her right side. And there are actually three, but two of them are really close to one another. And when you measure the distance, they're about, they're exactly 18 millimeters apart. We believe that those puncture wounds are from the probes of a handheld stun gun. Mm. Antoine Garner was known to carry a stun gun. Everybody that we've talked to who lived in the neighborhood knew that he carried a stun gun. And the first stun gun that we found on Amazon (laughs) that had measurements on it, the probes were 17.89 millimeters apart. So we really feel like like she was stunned in her face. And so what we're working on right now is trying to raise money to exhume her for a second time, hoping that uh, her body is still in good enough condition that we can have a lab, take a sample of the skin around those puncture wounds and test to see if there's any electrical, any evidence of an electrical weapon. And And that's part of trying to get this reinvestigated, isn't it? That's right. One of the one of the crazy laws in the state of New York is that there's a statute of limitations on 
any kind of like, like on um, manslaughter or on second degree homicide, there's a five year statute of limitations. So let's say that we got Amanda's case reopened as it is right now. And Mm. they said, yes, she was, she was murdered and we're going to prosecute Antoine Garner. Well, he could say, you know, she wasn't murdered. She did die. It was an accident during rough sex and I accidentally killed her. Well, that's manslaughter. He'll, he won't face any charges for that because the statute that's is, crazy. is run. That but just sounds crazy. I know it? it's nuts. It's completely nuts. But murder one has no statute of limitations. And if we can mm-hmm. prove that she was shocked in the head by a stun gun prior to her rape and prior to her strangulation, then that's murder one. And yeah. then they, they can they can go after him for it. Okie dokie. So that's pretty much all the story. Now, you've got a call to action. You've got a website you'd like people to have a look at and you can hit the join button. Tell us a bit about that. What we've done is we've created a website called treatedliketrash.com. And on that website, we have all of the information on the case that Amanda's mom is willing to to put out there. Keep in mind, Amanda sued Erie County and the Buffalo PD and won and got all of the investigative materials for Amanda's case. That's over 1,800 pages of documents, over 400 photographs. So on that site, we've published the autopsies for people to read. We've published toxicology reports for people to read. And we've published Adam Patterson's written statements, his depositions. So you can go to that website. And what we're really trying to do right now is raise money to exhume Amanda. It's going to cost somewhere between ten dollars and $12,000 US. And so, you know, we're selling Justice for Amanda t-shirts that we would love it if, if people would buy to help us. Or if you just want to donate, that would help us raise money to to exhume her. So far we've raised about $2,000. Also, you know, if your listeners Cambo can't donate or buy a t-shirt, that's also fine. We would love it if you would, if you would share this story around and, and get other people to know about it. You can even sign up to be in Amanda's army, which is our email list. And we let you know about what's you know, going changes on. in the case and so forth. Yeah. Okie dokie. Well, that's pretty much about it. Well, thanks, Gavin, for bringing this to my attention. I hope that the listeners out there, can, if they can't dig deep, that they at least join up to show their support. And we, we can see if we can get some justice for Amanda and her family. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you having me on and taking you know the time to, to give this case the attention that it deserves. I, I really appreciate it, Campbell. Thanks so much. Well, there you go, Islanders. Please do visit treatedliketrash.com. If every listener spent a dollar or bought a shirt, stick your email address in for updates, or even just shared the website, we can help Amanda and her mother get the justice they deserve. Visit Gavin's YouTube site. Now, his channel, it's just named Gavin Fish, and you can check out the playlist of short videos he's put together for more information on this case. And it really does suck you in once you start finding out what happened during that cold December in 2008. I won't end the show like I normally do, other than to say, don't forget to delete your browser history, and good night. Good night.